Okay, we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, 12 through 26. And then, David, when you're done reading, would you pray for the time? Sure. James 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may, wait, may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, we've been looking at the subject of authentic faith from this book of James. And we ended last time by looking at these two verses, 12 and 13 of chapter 2. We've said that the basic burden of this book is that authentic faith will always be accompanied by authenticating works. Authentic faith is always accompanied by authenticating works. The royal law of love will be evident in a true believer's life. In a real believer's life, you're going to see that law of love coming forth. Christ died for this. He loved us so that we might become loving people. He forgave us so that we might become forgiving people. He was merciful to us so that we might become merciful people. See, faith unites us with Christ, and he progressively works his character in and through our lives. And his character was love, mercy, forgiveness. So that's what's going to come out in a Christian's life if there's real faith there. A merciful attitude will be evident in how we speak and act in this life and will be evidence on the great day of judgment of the reality of our faith in Christ and our union with him. It will be evident and it will be evidence on that day of judgment. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. 
but for the one who truly trusts Christ and therefore is a doer of the law of liberty, mercy will triumph over judgment. So that's basically what we looked at last time. This brings us to the most controversial section of the book of James. And it's not an easy section. And we're going to have to think today to make some distinctions between things. It's not always easy. It's controversial, I think, because on the surface, it certainly seems to contradict what Paul says in many places, especially in Romans chapter 3 and 4 and Galatians chapter 3. And I just want to point those out to you so you feel something of the weight of the controversy here as we start. First of all, then, if we look at verse 24 of chapter 2 of James, he says this, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, so very clear statement. Man's justified by works and not by faith alone. So now if you turn back, keep your place in James, but turn back to Romans chapter 3. And just one place here, there's... uh, many sections here, many verses that we could look at, but just one to make a comparison. Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, most people would say, hmm, seems to be a problem here. Consider also how James uses Abraham to prove his point of being justified by works. So back in James, keep your place in Romans. Back in James, chapter 2, verse 21, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? So Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son. But Paul says that Abraham was not justified by works. So back in Romans, chapter 4, And we'll read uh, the first five verses of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So again, a a very uh, difficult two verses or sections here to try to, to bring together. Paul says, Abraham was not justified by works. James very clearly says, Abraham our father was justified by works. So... We certainly, it certainly appears that we have some difficulty here in reconciling what these men wrote. Now, what I want to do here is make a number of preliminary observations before we look at this section verse by verse. <clears throat> Actually, about as mu- I'm going to take about as much time making these preliminary observations as I am on going through the verses because we have to, we have to really understand the context, the setting, what what James was writing into here, or you won't be able to see how these uh, verses are reconciled. First thing I would say is that I don't think James was reacting to what Paul wrote. 
I don't think he was looking at Romans or Galatians and saying, well, now I'm going to write something different than that. If you remember in the first message that I gave on this series, I said that it's most likely that James was one of the earliest New Testament books. It was written before Paul wrote Romans or Galatians. So James obviously was, did not have these books before him as he wrote. I think that's important to, to consider. It seems most probable that James was dealing with a perversion of Paul's teachings which were being circulated at the time. Not the actual writings of Paul, but Paul was preaching justification by faith, and that teaching was being distorted and perverted. If Paul's letters had not yet been written, Paul's true doctrine could have easily been garbled, especially when it was heard second and third hand. You know, even after Paul wrote Romans, he had to deal with perversions of his teaching. Remember that? If you remember in Romans, he says in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. So Paul was saying, it's, it's reported slanderously that I'm, I'm teaching something like, let us do evil that good may come. He says, let their condemnation, their condemnation is just, he says. That's not what I'm teaching. But you see, there was a perversion. Paul was dealing with a perversion of his teaching there in Romans. Uh, another place he says, uh, and this would be in 6.15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. That was probably another perversion going out. You see, well, we're not under law, we're under grace, so we can just live the way we want to. He says, no, may it never be. So what I'm trying to say here is that as Paul began to teach the great doctrines, the great truths related to justification by faith, distortions and perversions of that teaching began to circulate. And James was writing here, partly anyway, to counter those, those distortions and those uh, perversions. And I just want to put a little aside in right here. This great doctrine of justification by faith is still being misused by many professing Christians. Whenever we hear that we can continue to live for ourselves and still be right with God because we've put our faith in Christ, we're hearing a perversion of Paul's teaching. As one commentator said, In our day as well, Christians need to continue to pay attention to the warning that James, the warning of James that true faith is to be tested by its works, and that only a faith that issues in works is genuinely saving faith. Let me say this another way. If our understanding of justification by faith makes us unconcerned about our obedience to Christ, we have the wrong understanding of what faith really is. And that's being taught. It's not, this is not theoretical. The fact is that biblical faith cannot exist apart from acts of obedience to God, specifically obedience to the law of liberty, which is what we looked at last week. That's what James says here. Let's just flip back in James chapter, chapter 1. He says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, 
This man shall be blessed in what he does. You have to do. You have to live. There has to be that reality that comes out of your life from this doctrine of justification by faith. So I would say that really in, in evangelical Christianity, this message of James is very important because it's being distorted. Just believe and go on and live the way you want to. That's not Christianity. That's not James's doctrine. Paul's doctrine either. It's not biblical. Actually, James and Paul do not contradict each other. They complement each other. The seeming contradiction comes from a misunderstanding of the purpose for which the letters were written, who they were written to, and differing definitions of key words like justify, faith, and works. Those are pretty key words. Justify, faith, and works. They have differing understandings, differing definitions of those words. So we need to consider, just this is all preliminary here, we need to take a little time to consider these three terms, justify, works, and faith. And like I said earlier, you're going to have to do some careful, clear thinking here uh, as we do this. The meaning of words are often determined by their specific context. The same word can have a different meaning in a different context. Now, I I have an example here. It's not a very good one. If I say dogs will bark at squirrels climbing on tree bark. Dogs will bark at squirrels climbing on tree bark. You know from the way the word bark is used in the sentence that the dog's bark is different from the tree's bark. I hope. So, what I'm saying is, the context determines how a word is used. And what we have to be careful about is that if we get an understanding of the way a word is used in one context, we can't just apply that everywhere in the rest of the Bible, especially if you're dealing with two different authors. James may use the word justify or the word works different than the way Paul does. So we get it, you know, if we get in our mind, this is what Paul meant by it, and we transfer that over to James, we're going to have some real problems because they're not using the word in the same context. They're not using the word the same way. So here's, I want to take those three words, justify and faith and works, and just talk about them a little bit. For James, justified means vindicated. It means shown to be righteous, proved to be righteous, especially at the time of judgment. That's what it meant for James. For Paul, justified means declared righteous, especially as a person enters the Christian life. One has more of uh, the outcome of the Christian life. The other has more the entrance of the Christian life. James is speaking of an activity subsequent to conversion demonstrating faith before men. Paul is speaking mainly of an initial legal declaration before God. We are justified, that is, declared righteous, before God by faith. That's what Paul's talking about. We're justified, declared righteous before God by faith. 
but we are justified, that is, shown to be righteous or, de- or demonstrated to be righteous before men by works. Now, you've got to think here. I don't want to lose you. See, God can see our faith. We can't see each other's faith. What we can see is each other's works. So the point is, is that one's talking about being declared righteous. That would be Paul's declared righteous. And James is talking about being demonstrated as righteous. So they're using that word justified differently. Then also this area of works. For James, works means Christ-like living. It means charity. It means Christian love. It means mercy. It means the law of Christ. That's what James is talking about when he's talking about works. For Paul, works meant keeping the law as necessary for salvation. The, the, the Jewish legalistic view of works. A set of rules to be kept in order to be right with God, which would render Christ's death on the cross as unnecessary or at least inadequate for salvation. And Paul was dead set against that view of works. He, he railed on it constantly in the book of Romans because it was contrary to Christ. But they, they see it's a different view of works. That's not what James was talking about. James, James was talking about Christ-like living, Christian love. So, once again, they're not talking about the same thing. And even in faith, you have to make a little distinction there. Because basically James was talking about a faith that could, could be false. Paul was talking about real faith as seen by God. For James, the faith which does not save is an intellectual or verbal assent, something we just think about or talk about. For Paul, the faith which does save is a heart response to God's call. It's trust in God. So James was emphasizing the fruit of faith, which is Christ-likeness. Paul was emphasizing the root of faith, which is trust in Christ. So even in, even in their understanding of faith, there's a little difference there in the sense that James was bringing out very clearly that faith can be false. Well, they have these differing meanings to these terms because they were uh, addressing different groups with different issues. As one writer put it, he said, it's the seeming disagreement between Paul and James is due to the fact that they are seeking to correct different errors and hence look at the matter from different points of view. Okay, so they were seeking to correct different errors. Paul was dealing with something different than James was dealing with. Paul was writing to Jews who believed that they could be right with God on the basis of their race, that is, their nationality, and their keeping of the law of Moses, which is basically legalism. That's who Paul was dealing with. On the other hand, James was writing primarily to Jewish Christians who were being tempted to view Christianity as a profession of a creed instead of a lifestyle. So it was not legalism like 
Paul was dealing with, but laxness and license, that was the problems that James was dealing with. Not legalism, but laxness and license. He was dealing with those who had a mere intellectual apprehension and application of the gospel. These folks were asserting orthodoxy as a basis of their assurance of salvation. And James says, no, that's not it. He tells those people that daily love and action is not an option for a Christian. Some people love and some people... Some Christians love, some people don't. No. He's saying that's not the way it is. It's not an option for a Christian. Love and action is the evidence of our truly being Christians. For James' works were not keeping the Jewish laws, but love and action. For Paul, works were the Jewish deeds of formal obedience to the Mosaic law. And they were often, a person that had that attitude was often very prideful or boastful. You know, I did this, therefore I'm right with God. For James, works were humble actions that fulfill the law of love to their neighbor. That's what they were for James. So Paul's view of works makes works antithetical to the gospel. James' view of works makes them natural and a natural and necessary part of the gospel. Paul would say they have no part in the gospel. James says they're a natural and necessary part of the gospel. You still with me? They're not giving two different ways of salvation, you see. One works in one, one faith. But two aspects of one salvation. And here's the amazing thing. They pick out one man, Abraham, to bring out both, both of those two sides of the same coin. Paul speaks primarily of the beginning of Abraham's life of faith in Genesis 15. You might say the entering into the Christian life. He uses Abraham's life as an Old Testament example of being declared right before God long before there was any law given, before the law of Moses was given, before circumcision, any of that. Based solely on the basis of God's grace and the appropriate response of faith. That's what Paul was looking at using Abraham. James, on the other hand, speaks of the ongoing characteristics of the Christian's life of faith and uses the great trial of Abraham's faith when he was called upon to offer up his son Isaac, his only son, the son of promise. He uses that part of Abraham's life to illustrate his point. For James, authentic faith must be an ongoing working faith. As he emphasizes throughout his letter, Faith is the stance of belief toward God by which one, that is, by, by which a believer endures trials, asks for wisdom, resists temptation, controls your tongue, looks after orphans and widows in distress, keeps oneself unspotted from the world, avoids favoritism, loves one's neighbor as oneself, gives to the physical necessities of the poor, and in short, lives as a doer of the word. That's what faith is. 
in James's understanding of that term, an ongoing stance of belief toward God. Both Paul and James would agree that what matters in the Christian life is faith working through love. That's the way Paul puts it in Galatians, faith working through love. Or as he says in Ephesians, we're not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. Yeah. You know, we don't do... Well, let's turn back because we don't do right on this because we only... We quote part of that section and we... And uh, it leaves a false impression. Ephesians chapter 2, and starting with verse 9, better start with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. Now we usually stop there. But it's very important to go on. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why did God bring you into the kingdom? Well, one of the reasons is for good works. That the, the life of God would be lived through us. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're about done with the preliminaries here. Let me just say again, the burden of this part of, Paul, of James's letter is that biblical faith cannot exist apart from acts of obedience to God. James makes this clear in three summary statements in this section. And let me just read them to you. Back in James chapter 2. Three summary statements. Verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. And then verse 20. Another summary statement. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then the last verse in this section, 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So you could take this section of Scripture and outline it this way. We're talking about verses 14 through 26. 14 through 17 is an illustration showing the inadequacy of mere profession, a mere profession of faith. 18 through 20 is a rational argument showing the uselessness of a faith like the demons have. If you have a faith like the demons have, it's useless. And then verses 21 through 26 are two biblical examples, Abraham and Rahab, showing what authentic faith really is. It shows authentic faith working. So that's, that's the way I'd outline this section, or you could outline it this way. Authentic faith is not an empty claim, not just a said faith. That's the first uh, 14 through 17. Authentic faith is not mere adherence to a creed, not just a head faith. That's 18 through 20. And authentic faith is faith that produces an obedient life, not just a dead faith. So if you want my outline, not just a said faith, not just a head faith, and certainly not a dead faith. That's the, uh, I think, the flow of what we're looking at here. So now, with all that preliminary, 
Let's try to go verse by verse. And this, this is not uh, really in-depth. I just want to get the basic flow here. So 14 through 17. Let's just uh, read this here. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? So here's a person that says they have faith. James does not say that this person has faith. He says this person says they have faith. That's very important. If that person has no works, can that faith save him? What, when he says that faith, what's he talking about? Is he, he's talking about that faith that just says, I have faith. That's the faith he's talking about that has no works with it. He says, can that, faith, can that kind of faith save the person? And, of course, James expects you to realize the answer is no, it cannot. He's already told us in the preceding verses that judgment will be merciless to the one who's shown no mercy. James is saying that one of those, that one whose faith has no works is one whose faith is not sufficient to save him, especially on the day of judgment. There will be a condemnation for that type of person on the day of judgment. And then he gives an illustration of this kind of said faith. He's going to give you a little illustration of this. That's in verse 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, here's that said faith, he says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Here's, this, here's the picture that he gives. Here's the illustration. Somebody's got a need in the, in the body, brother or sister. And you say, well, bless, the Lord bless you. You know, God will take care of you. What good, James is saying, what good does it do for the person that lacks food and clothing for you to say some pious-sounding statements to them? All your words do not put food in their stomach or clothes on their body. <coughs> Sentimental good, wish, good wishes do little good for the person. And even a statement like something like this, well, we'll be praying for you, can actually be a way of avoiding helping the person. Now, I'm not speaking against praying for somebody in need. But it can be an easy way out of not getting involved in the person's life. We'll just say, well, God will take care of you, but I'm not going to worry about it. James is saying that that type of supposed faith doesn't help the person in need, nor does it do the one professing it any good, because it's not accompanied by Christ-like activity. A said faith is a dead faith if acts of love are absent. Let's just do one quick cross-reference on this. We turn to 1 John. It's such a good parallel passage. 1 John chapter 3, 
verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good, goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. It's exactly what James is hitting on here. Not loving in word, but in truth. So, that's the first little section. Now we'll go on to 18 through 20. Let's just read it here. But someone may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Are you, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So here James has an objector speak. Sometimes that's a good way of making your point, just bring up a hypothetical objector. And he has an objector speak here. But it's a little difficult to know what part of these verses should be within their quotation marks. You see, the way the New American Standard did it here, uh, but someone may well say, and then the quotations start right there, you have faith, and it goes down to the end of the verse. But the problem is, is that in the Greek text, you didn't have the punctuation, you didn't have the quotation marks, you certainly didn't have these verse verses. All that was added. So, you know, when the translator comes to this, they have a hard time knowing where to put these quotation marks. Some put it the way the New American Standard did, the NIV puts it after just the first phrase, you have faith and I have works. Some translations include all of 19 in the quotation marks. So we, it's a little difficult to know quite uh, how to uh, punctuate this, this section, but I would take exception to the New American Standard. Might not be right, but this is what I think he's doing here. If someone may, but someone may well say, and then the quotes start, you have faith and I have works. I'd put the end of the quotes right there. Okay? Put the end of the quotes right there. At least that seems best to me. This makes the objector arguing that one can be saved either by faith or by works. In other words, he'd be saying, well, some people have faith and some people have works. You know, you have this gift, and I have that gift. And <laughs> making them a separate thing. James denies this view. He's saying it's impossible to divorce faith and works. That's what he's been hammering on. Faith and works are inseparable. They always accompany one another. James is responding to the objector then in the rest of verse 18. He says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, he's making a response there. It's not faith or works, but faith and works. Not faith or works, but faith and works. As is often stated when people deal with this section of Scripture, faith alone justifies, 
But the faith that justifies is never alone. The faith that justifies is never alone. Fruit-bearing proves genuineness. Fruit-bearing proves the genuineness of the faith. No fruit, probably no root. No visible fruit, there's probably no real root down there in the heart. Now, this objector was trying to separate faith and works. Paul and James says you can't do it. But there is a kind of faith that can be separated from good works. It's the kind of faith that demons have. That's what he brings up next. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. So here's a statement, a true statement of true doctrine. Uh, this, This teaching of monotheism was a major teaching of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. It's, uh, you know, basic, foundational, first test of orthodoxy for the Jewish people. Well, the fact is demons are quite orthodox. They have correct doctrine. They, they don't doubt monotheism. They, they, know, they know that for sure. Besides that, they know who Jesus is. If you're reading through the Gospels, you recognize they realize who Christ is. But... They have no love for God or for people. They have no good deeds, despite being aware of what the Bible teaches. So the point that James is making here is that Christianity is not only correct doctrine, but a relationship of love and obedience to Christ. Now, that's not to disparage doctrine. Doctrine's important. I mean, you wouldn't even know if you were obeying the true Christ unless you had the right doctrine concerning Christ, who he is, what he's done. But a theological, intellectual commitment to accurate theology does not make a person right with God. Orthodoxy alone, without a changed life, is empty. That's what he's saying. Uh, There in the summary statement, will you not... But are you, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? It's worthless. Now, he has a little thing on the end here related to this demon faith. He says, they believe and shudder. They have a form of faith, and they even shudder with that. And there's... Is, I'm not sure why he puts that on him. Perhaps James adds this to show that at least the demons display some kind of visible reaction to their faith, as opposed to these people who say, "Well, I just believe, and that's all. And that's all that matters." Or perhaps he's saying, "If we have this same kind of false faith that the demons have, a mere..." intellectual understanding of truth, a verbal intellectual profession with no works, we ought to shudder in fear of judgment like the demons do. That may be why he put on that, tax that on there. Whatever the reason for saying this, the fact that they shudder, the main point is a fruitless faith is a useless faith. So that brings us down to 21 through 26, the last section. Let's 
Let's read this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now this is the most difficult part. James has shown that unauthentic faith a said faith, the one that sounds pious, uh, but has no works of compassion, or a demon-like faith that's doctrinally com- correct, but again demonstrates no active love or service to God and man, is not true faith. It's not authentic. So what is authentic faith then? Well, James answers that by giving us two biblical examples, Abraham and Rahab. Here's two examples of what real faith is like. Two people about as far apart as you can get in their characters. One is considered the father of the Jewish nation. The other was an immoral Canaanite woman. But they had this in common. They both demonstrated authentic faith. So, first Abraham. Abraham's used by Paul in Romans chapter 4 quoting from Genesis 15. And James uses him here in this account, quoting from a different part of Genesis, Genesis 22, not quoting from but alluding to Genesis 22. Both are making their theological case from the same man but from different periods in his life. Paul speaks of Abraham's initial call and promises to him, especially the promise of descendants through Isaac. But James speaks of what happens years later, probably, I don't know, 30 years later, in in the major test of Abraham's faith when he was called to offer up this son of promise, Isaac. So Abraham was brought into fellowship. Now, you need to really think here. Abraham was brought into fellowship with God by trusting in what God said. But that trust was tested and proven and dramatically demonstrated in his actions with Isaac. The offering of Isaac was not the ground of Abraham's faith. It was the result, the outward visible expression of that faith. So James wants his readers to recognize that Abraham's faith could not be separated from his his works. They They just go together. Faith and works always cooperate. The works James requires are not done apart from faith, but done in faith. Not done instead of faith, but done because of faith. What what happened there with, with Isaac was done in faith. It was a very visible expression of faith. I mean, it couldn't get more dramatic than what happened there. As James puts it, Faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected or completed. 
Faith was working with his works. It's clear that Abraham's faith preceded his works because James says works perfected his faith. You can't perfect something if it's not there. Faith came first, but then the works followed. They came right along with it. James does not deny the necessity of faith, only that faith never stands alone. So Abraham's initial faith found its fulfillment when he obeyed God in a way that demonstrated to all, for centuries since then, demonstrated to all that his faith was authentic. I mean, when we talk about faith, think of what happened there. How could you... I mean, it's such a... It's almost hard to believe that he even did it or was going to do it before God stopped him. So that's Abraham. Then James chooses Rahab for another example of authentic faith, probably to show that his argument covered the widest range of people possible. I mean, you can't just from one end of the spectrum to the other, the widest range of possible people. Here is a Gentile prostitute. This would not normally be considered a good role model for righteous living. But she put her trust in God and was shown to be righteous by her actions of receiving the spies and sending them out another way. She's there in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 because of what she did here with these spies. She sent them out, it says, by another way. She trusted what she heard about God and put her life on the line to aid God's people. She trusted what she'd heard about God. So I, we've heard what, you, what your God has done. And I'm going I'm to take you guys in and I'm going to protect you. That put her life on the line with her own people. So whether you are a patriarch or a prostitute, you can possess a faith that bears fruit. Yes, I think that's what why he chose those two examples. Uh, faith that works. If it does not work, it's a dead faith. Just like the body without the spirit is dead. A body without the breath, without the spirit is dead. Without works, a said faith or a head faith is a dead faith. It's a lifeless faith. It's not that it was once alive and then died. It never had life. You can be as orthodox and talk as much as you want to about Christianity, but unless... The reality of a life change is there. James says it's a dead faith. It never had life. But true faith is a living thing empowered by the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. When, when God makes you into a new person, that faith produces brings forth through the power of the Holy Spirit a life that's changed. Again, the, the purpose of God is for him to live his life through us. 
conform us to the image of Christ. I'd like to close with a quote from Luther. Now, this may seem strange, because Luther, you remember, he, he's the one that had a rather low, low view of this letter of James. He called it a right strawy epistle. Strawy, which means there's not a lot of substance to it. Why did he do that? Well, he was battling a different problem at the time. He wasn't battling the problem that James was dealing with. He was faced with a Roman Catholic medieval theology that placed a great emphasis on works in salvation and denied justification by faith alone. And what happens sometimes when we fight against an error, fight against an extreme, is we can tend to go a little bit far on the other side. And I think that's what... what uh, Luther was doing here with the book of James. He just, he just didn't uh, really see how James was dealing with a different problem than what he was dealing with. We've got to be careful about that, overreacting, going off the, you know, one guy's in a ditch one side and you try to pull him out and you both end up in a ditch on the other side. <laughs> you know, on the road, you know. <laughs> anyway... I say all that to say you couldn't, you couldn't get a better commentary on what James was talking about than what Luther wrote in his preface to the Romans, the letter to the Romans. Now, I'm going to read this to you and just think about how this fits perfectly with, with what James is saying real faith is. He says, Luther says, Oh, it is a living, busy active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this, and it's constantly doing them. Talking about good works. Faith, he says, real faith constantly does good works. Then he says this, whoever does not do such works, however is an unbeliever. That's what James was talking about. He said, if this isn't here, if these works aren't here, you're just an unbeliever. You've got a, you've got a false faith. It might be a, it's a said faith or a head faith, but it's a dead faith. It's a useless faith. So I, like the way, I just like the way he says it. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. That's what James was saying. Real faith, authentic faith is like that. And whoever doesn't have this active love, this active obedience to Christ, he says, well, that person's just an unbeliever. James, I'm sure if, if he transposed this quote back into James's time, he would say, amen, Luther, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, I'll, I'll close there.